The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. The Nasdaq closes at a record high, while the S&P 500 turns positive for the year as investors wait on the Federal Reserve. Meanwhile, hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller tells CNBC he misjudged how far the central bank was prepared to go. I've been humbled many times in my career, uh, and I'm sure I'll be humbled many times in the future, and the last three weeks certainly fits that category. But I would also say I underestimated how, how many red lines and how far the Fed would go. President Trump says he will not defund the police as House Democrats unveil a proposal to reform law enforcement while thousands visit George Floyd's casket ahead of his funeral. Saudi Arabia will no longer cut additional oil output, saying demand is thriving after OPEC and its allies agree to extend the production deal by just one month. We have no room whatsoever for lack of infirmity. All of us in the whole world oil market have no stomach whatsoever for any, uh, any type of laxities. 10,000 jobs set to go at BP as the British oil major says it's spending a lot more than it's making. But the CEO Bernard Looney says the cuts will not impact frontline jobs. These are tough decisions to make um, and the impact, um, particularly on those who will be leaving us, is however much, much tougher. Um, and I understand that and as I said before, and I'm sorry. The merger between PSA and Fiat hits a bump in the road as regulators raise concerns about their combined market share in the van segment in a move that could force more concessions from the auto giants. So, very good morning to you. Let's just take a quick look at the walls before we get into the meat of our stories this morning. And I think uh, as we have seen over days and weeks here, the rally continues to build momentum, it would seem, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.7% here. The Nasdaq getting a lot of attention, obviously, because of the size of the volume we saw passing through this market. We're going to hear a little bit more from uh, Mr. Druckenmiller. Uh, and it is humbling, I think, to hear him humble because let's face it we've all stood on the sidelines of this rally and we've watched it going up and we've watched the layoffs we've watched the furloughing we've watched the collapsing corporate earnings we've watched various major agencies come out and tell us that this is the fastest collapse in the economy in the United States since the 1930s and we've watched this market go higher. And Mr. Druckenmiller, uh, not too proud to say that he has failed to take advantage of that as a seasoned professional. So you don't have to feel too bad if you haven't enjoyed the full 40% rebound we've seen because Mr. Druckenmiller, as he explains, has only seen 3% of that 40% jump. 
So don't feel so bad about how you're trading this market if you've not participated. If you've made the 40%, congratulations to you. You've done extremely well. How are you going to play the next phase here? Are we building for a blow-off top? Or ultimately, can these markets continue to grind higher as we still see governments and central banks very much engaged in providing stimulus to help this economy recover? We just wanted to pick out a few names for you this morning just to highlight, I think, a little bit more about how the market has traded. And these are some very big companies and companies that have played a critical role both to the downside and, of course, now to the upside as we see animal spirits getting a little carried away with what they perceive is going to be a V-shaped recovery, quite frankly. Carnival, the company that had uh, all these cruise liners that in the very early days of this pandemic were suffering from uh, terrible infections on board and countries refusing their uh, cruise ships uh, uh, docking. This stock is now back 15.8% over the last 24 hours. And both Boeing and United Airlines are punt on the uh, air routes, the air bridges and various travel scenarios being positive. You can see bouncing back very strongly here at this point. So let's have a quick look at the dollar crosses. Effectively, the bottom line on this is the dollar is now back to where we were in January. And given that the dollar has represented a place of safety as far as many investors are concerned. That tells you, again, that in the currency markets as well as the equity markets, investors are becoming a little bit more emboldened about the idea that we may have seen the worst. And quite frankly, things can only get better from here on in. But I continue to read analysts who uh, write in um, uh, uh, various uh, places that a bounce is not a recovery. This was just a zero hedge piece that was pointed up to me over the last 48 hours here. And yet people are participating and that is reflected in what we're seeing across the currency markets at this hour. Asia, how are we doing as we come into the European session? What is the legacy like from the Asian market session? Well, barring Japan, are effectively participating here. Even Hong Kong, which we will talk about in a bit more detail over this hour as we look to further protests around this new security law. Let's go back to our friend Mr. Druckenmiller then. The US market rally has taken longtime hedge fund manager Mr. Druckenmiller by surprise, the famed investor, telling CNBC he underestimated the effects of Fed easing on the market. I've been humbled many times in my career, uh, and I'm sure I'll be humbled many times in the future. And the last three weeks certainly fits that category. Um, So I had long-term concerns for the last few years that uh, because of easy money, too much debt was being built up in the corporate sector. Um, When COVID hit, I was pretty much of the view that there was a good chance that the bubble had finally, the credit bubble had finally burst and the underlining, the unwinding of that leverage could take years. Um, I'm still of that view over the long term. 
Stanley Druckenmiller, the Fed has eased the conditions of its Main Street lending program, allowing companies to borrow even more. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said the moves will improve the program's ability to support employment. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is set to begin its two-day policy meeting today and is widely expected to hold interest rates. The central bank's policymakers will also release their first economic forecasts in six months. The U.S. is now officially in recession following the downturn that began in February with the pandemic lockdown. That's according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, which made its declaration citing the, quote, unprecedented magnitude of the decline in employment and production and its broad reach across the entire economy. The recent contraction has ended the longest expansion in the country's post-World War, uh, Second World War history, which lasted over 128 months, according to that report. Well, the World Bank has predicted 2020 will mark the deepest recession for the global economy in 80 years. It estimates worldwide GDP will contract 5.2% this year. Advanced economies are projected to shrink by 7%, with the US economy expected to contract by 6.1% before rebounding next year. So what have we got here? The highest ever Nasdaq volume, the World Bank calling it a global recession, the worst US downturn since the 1930s, and the S&P is now up for the year. Let's go figure. Steve, let's bring you in first. Steve and Karen, obviously, putting the team back together here on Squawk Box. But Steve, let's maybe kick off with you here. What could possibly go wrong? I think um, if we just look at the overall figures from the outside, everything can go wrong. But if we actually do a tiny bit of work, Jeff, we actually see there's a lot more subtlety to the market uh, than the big headline figure about NASDAQ records. Look, there's no doubt about it. Technology sector, it's done really well. It is up 11% for the year. But there's a whole more load of subtleties beneath that as well. You've got industrials, utilities, financials, all in correction territory. And I know I made this point, but I'm making it again this week so that people understand we are not off to the races on a whole host of indices. I mentioned tech just now. They're up 11% for the year. How much lower than that up 11% do you think energy is? And I haven't even mentioned that one yet. It's about 34% lower uh, than where tech is, i.e. it's down about 23% where tech is up 11%. So if we look on the surface, yeah, we're off to the races on the NASDAQ, we're off to the races on the S&P. But beneath the surface, there is a lot more subtlety to this. Yes, we've lost uh, a lot of economic growth potential, but my goodness me, has that been offset by the largesse uh, of central banks and uh, lack of regulations and the fiscal support we've given. And I'll just use BP as an example as well, because I'm outside BP's headquarters in central London. We're going to talk about that story a little bit later on as well. But if anyone thinks we're back to where we are, they are in cloud cuckoo land. This is a company that is scything capex, scything jobs, uh, and will potentially be scything the dividend as well. They haven't mentioned that, but the dividend yield is definitely there to be taken down as well. It's a stock that in January was trading at five pounds sterling. At its low, it was around about half that this year. It is now up to around about 365 pence, give or take the change as well. So it is still a third lower, 30% lower than where we started at our high point of the year. If anyone thinks across the board that we're back, well, they're in cuckoo land and they're not doing their work. 
I think we're at a crossroads here for investors on sentiment. I just want to weigh in on the point around the Fed. And Jeff just mentioned the first forecast in six months. So this week we get a look at where the Fed thinks we're going, just how bad the pain will be. That might be important for investors just to reassess after that very strong jobs report that was another catalyst for markets to move higher. We've also heard some comments out there from quarters of the market about whether this could be a taper tantrum moment for investors. Yes, it is worth sitting up and taking notice of that. That comment that was from Evercore yesterday. Uh, they mentioned the taper tantrum potential again as the Fed communicates. Unless it's extremely dovish this week, you may see yields lift off. And if you think about what happened over the course of the jobs report over the weekend, we saw about a 20 basis points escalation in the 10 year yield. Only small fry given how far we've moved south this year, but there have been three major moves and we've been carried higher as a result. If the market thinks that we've not got a dovish tone from the Fed, you could see an escalation escalation that yield. Why do we care about the taper tantrum? Well, Steve just mentioned technology names. One of the biggest sell-offs that the technology sector faced in recent years was on the taper tantrum. So if there is perceived change by the amount of stimulus the Fed is willing to bring, that could be a problem for the markets in terms of bringing more volatility into the equation. And I'll just point out fund managers, hedge funds are all expecting another wave of volatility to hit the markets at some point. So will the central bank be the catalyst? The other problem too on the back of the jobs report that we saw out on Friday, much stronger than anticipated. What does that mean for stimulus? Now, Jay Powell is meant to be urging the US, Fed, the US government to come up with more stimulus in coming weeks and months because this will be a painful crisis still to extract many businesses and individuals from. But has some of that ammunition now fallen by the wayside because of that strong jobs report that crossed? And will it be much harder to enact another stimulus program, which puts more pressure then on the Fed. So I think at this point, just worth taking caution, given how far we have travelled on markets and whether we could have some volatility, first from the bond market that stems across to the equity market, Jeff. Terrific point, Karen and Steve. We'll come back to both of you in just a moment. And I know we need to talk a lot about energy this morning. And good that we've got you outside the BP headquarters there, Steve. We'll catch up with you in just a second. And while we're discussing jobs, let's just remind you that we have a guest coming up at 6.30. Mark Cahill will join us, Managing Director of Manpower UK. They have a report on the labour market. We're going to hear a little bit more about what they think the trends may be around rehiring as we begin to come through these uh, relief of lockdowns. Uh, US President Donald Trump has told law enforcement leaders at the White House that he's against defunding, dismantling or disbanding police, adding 99% of officers are, quote, great people. The roundtable comes after the Minneapolis City Council pledged to disband the city's police force in the wake of George Floyd's death. A thing like happened should never have happened, and plenty of things shouldn't have happened. But uh, we can't give up the finest law enforcement anywhere in the world. There's nothing like it. Uh, Few people, few countries have our record. And I'm talking about the positive record. So we're going to be discussing some ideas and some concepts and some things. Uh, But we won't be defunding our police. We won't be dismantling our police. We won't be disbanding our police. We won't be ending our police force in a city. President Trump there. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats have introduced legislation to reform policing in the country after kneeling silently for nearly nine minutes in honour of George Floyd. The bill would ban chokeholds, unannounced police raids and create a national database 
to track police misconduct. All of this comes as thousands of people in Texas lined up to pay their respects to George Floyd ahead of a private funeral today. NBC's Wendy Woolfolk filed this report. The poignant public goodbye to a man whose death has gripped our nation. Thousands, including Texas Governor Greg Abbott, paying their respects to George Floyd. George Floyd has not died in vain. His life will be a living legacy. Most never knew him, but touched by his story. So even though we don't know them, you know, we, we, still, we still stand with them. For hours they come, all wearing masks and observing social distance measures while moving through the sanctuary to pause in solidarity. A bittersweet return to Floyd's childhood home of Houston, Flanked by other families of those also shot and killed by police, his brother remembers the high school football star as the father they never had. He's a gentle giant, and uh, he had his life taken away when he shouldn't have been. He should have been here speaking on somebody else's behalf. In Minneapolis today, a judge set bail at $1 million for Derek Chauvin, the former officer seen in that now infamous video. It's not enough for those cops just to be charged, but they need, we need a conviction. We need to show people that, hey, look, no one is above the law. Now, after two weeks of heartbreak and a country seemingly torn by protest. I'll tell you what, if he was told, told he, he would have to sacrifice his life to bring the world together, and I knowing him, I knowing he would have did it. A hope shared across the nation. Wendy Woolfolk, NBC News. Well, so to come on the program, oil prices dip on disappointment over the OPEC Plus deal, but Saudi Arabia says demand is, quote, thriving. We'll have analysis on that when we come back. And a reminder, for more on this major market rebound, do check out the Squawk Box podcast. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Oil fell more than 3% during yesterday's session after Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and the UAE agreed to stop voluntary output cuts. This after OPEC and its allies decided to extend the deepest ever production cuts until the end of July. The additional reductions by the Gulf nations would have removed an extra 1.2 million barrels off the market, helping offset fresh supply flowing in from reopened U.S. shale wells. Uh, just taking a, a quick look at uh, where we are then on these quotes at the moment. WTI just below that $40 a barrel level, as you can see at 38.41, and Brent currently $40.90. The Saudi oil minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, said all OPEC plus members will have to comply with the agreed cuts to have any chance of rebalancing the oil market. We have no room whatsoever for lack of conformity. Uh, the only room we created 
on Saturday was those who did not confirm in May and June should make up uh, the amount that they did not uh, 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 obligated themselves to deliver, that they are to deliver it in July, August, September. But uh, I guess most of us uh, and all of us and the whole world oil market have no stomach whatsoever for any uh, any type of laxities. Qatar's energy minister has told CNBC in an exclusive interview that producers are in serious danger uh, or were in serious danger earlier this year when the pandemic hit the already overflowing oil market. He said Qatar, which has uh, quit OPEC, uh, welcomes the production cuts by its rivals. It was a very big mistake, I think, to, to flood the market. Uh, and, and uh, you know, flooding the market is what caused us to go to a very high, low level. And then the pandemic basically uh, took it the other, uh, yeah, you know, the, almost to uh, a very dangerous uh, area where people could not afford to produce anymore. And we saw, you know, negative pricing in the WTI. Uh, now, uh, I think the actions that have been taken uh, by the same group really is to agree what was agreed in the past and, and uh, uh, keep more sensible, uh, I think, approach to the market to cater for uh, the supply and demand that we're seeing. So there is a shortage uh, of, of that coordination in the beginning of the year. Now I think it's, it's much better and hopefully that the demand uh, should pick up slowly with people coming out of quarantines all over the world uh, or, uh, you know, the lockdowns, and especially the movement of transportation in general, mass transportation and, and uh, jet, uh, uh, you know, airlines taking off again and, and so on. But it, it will be slow. When you think about what's happening in the LNG market, there is a sense um, that, for example, U.S. players are feeling the heat in a way that U.S. shale producers have been feeling the heat over the last several months. Do you see a similarity between what's happening uh, to U.S. LNG producers versus the shale producers who are in a heck of a lot of pain? Yeah, I think I think um, you know the entire oil and gas industry is in a lot of pain uh, these days because of of uh, the lack of demand and and the prices going down so much. Uh, so uh, the uh, you know the the higher uh, cost producers, whether it's oil or gas, are the ones that hurt first, if you will. So let's have a conversation about this. There's an awful lot to unpack in this. But Steve, let's let's maybe start with you here. And I guess um, lack of compliance is just one aspect to the failure, really, to get a, a longer-term deal here? Um, do you know, I, I'm, I'm no apologist for OPEC, OK? Uh, there's a lot of things that have gone wrong in their strategy, but with the war between Saudi and Russia earlier in the year was absolutely disastrous and ruinous and, quite frankly, self-defeating as well. Uh, but I, I, I think we have got a long-term deal, haven't we? Am I missing something here? We've got 9.7 or 9.6, if you take the Mexicans out it, uh, for another month. You've got 7.7 .7 million a day till the end of the year, which, again, unprecedented levels taken off. Then you go to 5 point something next year as well. So I think we have 
have got a long-term deal. And to say the market's disappointed by it, I think it's disingenuous of our producers, if I may say so, because the fact of the matter is, when you're disappointed, then you've got the August contract, as it was trading in late April, down at 25 bucks, not at $41, having held on to, albeit most, if not a buck, of the recent rally. 42.30 was the previous close on Friday as well. We've come down to 41 on the August Brent contract, give or take the change. I wouldn't call that disappointment. I would call that stabilisation after a 60% rally, wouldn't you? And the other point I would make is, look at the inventories. This isn't about the headline figures. This is about Saudi and Russia looking at the global inventories. The figure, just to take a couple of steps back, the figure they all are terrified about is too big an inventory build uh, at the OECD. And if you're way above the five-year average, that's when they really start to worry that their product isn't needed uh, over at OPEC as well. So have a look at that. And if any sign at all that that five-year inventory average is being hit or they're getting down the excess inventories, then they get more excited. So that's the key to look at as well. But in terms of disappointed, if we're trading down at 35 bucks, then I'll go along with that line. I was just going to jump in on compliance because I think when we talk about uh, how much credibility OPEC and, OPEC, OPEC and its allies have, it's been an incredible journey to get off those uh, lows, the, the negative trade that we saw in one contract and then the recovery story. Compliance is quite key. But if you look at the number of nations that are not complying, I mean, Nigeria, Angolia, uh, Kazakhstan, Russia, all overproduced uh, in the month of May by more than 100,000 barrels per day. On top of that, Iraq by more than 500,000 barrels per day. Now, Iraq is in this catch-up process where it'll try and trim back in July, August, September. If you think about what it produced in May, well, it produced oil into a market that was selling at much lower prices than where we got to by June. What lies ahead if you get much higher prices in July, August and September, or even if we're sustained at these levels, then Iraq certainly missed out on some income. It would have been better to have waited it out for a better price in the market. So it's, I think it's going to be tough for some of these individual sovereign nations trying to control that narrative at home with their populations clearly going through some economic pain, Steve. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.